All right. We'll let you guys make your way back to your seats. We'll be jumping in. Good morning, guys. If uh, we haven't met yet, my name is Jared. I'm on staff here. I do a bit of setup, administration type stuff. So all the stuff that we set up in the mornings, I kind of help lead our family groups doing that. They do most of the work. I just kind of stand around and point at stuff. It's a pretty good gig. Um, and then I do a couple other things throughout the week. Um, kids, if you're still in the room, you can go ahead and be dismissed. You can go to your class. Or if you want to go get one of the worksheets at the kids' table, feel free to go do that now. Uh, adults, if you also want to grab a worksheet at the kids' table, uh, maybe help you follow along. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Ephesians 4. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we've got some on each row. Uh, those are a gift to you. Please take them. Enjoy them. Um, but we're going to be in Ephesians 4, and I kind of want to start this morning by looking back to where we've been the last few weeks in Ephesians so far. So Paul spends the first three chapters of Ephesians laying out this rich, dense theology, right? He gives a beautiful picture of the gospel, uh, how Jesus has granted us every spiritual blessing, how even though we were dead by the choice of our sin, by our very own things, right? He gave us life, not just new life, but life life. We once were dead, but through the death and resurrection of Jesus, he has cleansed us of his sins, of our sins, and given us uh, this life, right? He unites us to God, and he gives us peace with him forever, and he also reconciles us to each other, uh, killing the hostility between us, right? So Paul spends uh, most of Ephesians breaking this down, explaining it, and then the last half of Ephesians is where he starts giving this practical uh, this is how you respond to the gospel. So we kind of start that out this morning. Um, but before we do, I want to look back at the last verses of chapter 3, right? And it says this, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, I point out this section uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, like I said, because Paul starts to lay out how we respond to the gospel. And as Christians, we can't separate these two things. We can't separate um, our action from the grace of God in initiating this process and seeing us through, sanctifying us daily to it. And it all starts with this correct view of God, how we see him. And our only duty is just to respond to that, right? And he kind of lays out exactly what that looks like, but that's, that's all it is. And I heard this from a missionary at a conference a long time ago, and I wish I could remember his name so I could give him credit. But he says this, he says, right theology leads us to worship. When we rightly recognize God for who he is and what he has done, it leads us to living holy, dedicated lives to him. So as we spend the next few months talking about the last bit of Ephesians, uh, how we live according to the gospel, uh, we need to keep this in mind that it is only according to the power at work within us, to the glory of God in Jesus. So I'm going to pray for us and we're going to jump into Ephesians 4. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for just allowing us to come and worship you. I thank you for um, the glory that you've given us, that you've shown us that you would allow us to be a part of it. I pray that you will be um, with, our, with my words this morning, just make it clear and concise and mostly glorify you, Father. I pray for those that are listening, just that you will be with their hearts and be with their minds. Amen. So starting in verse 1, uh, and just heads up, I've been fighting a cold this week, so we'll see how this goes. Um, verse 1, it says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So Paul takes the time here to remind us of his imprisonment for two main reasons. 
right? So the first is to show and encourage us that he actually means what he says. This isn't just, uh, he's not just saying random words. He actually walks this. He believes it. And he shows us this through his time that he spends in jail. Uh, We see the genuineness and the strength behind his faith. And we know that these words are true partly because he shows them that, right? He could have just renounced Christ, been set free from jail, and moved on with his life. That's not what we see. And the second reason that he shows us uh, about his imprisonment is to show us where walking like Jesus could land us. And this is a truth that he just spells out again and again and again. It's just the worth of Jesus, right? The gospel is so much more worth than our freedom, our lives. And again, he shows this so well just through the way that he lives his life, through uh, hardships, imprisonment, eventually to death. And we come to this truth that the same God that Paul believed in, that he worshipped, that he did these things for, is the same God today who will always be worth walking with no matter the cost. And he continues on. He says, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And again, these first few verses are kind of like a title to what's happening at the last end of Ephesians. It's like a bookend. So he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling, right? And then he kind of spells it out throughout the rest of the chapter. So the rest of the book is concerned all about walking worthy. And this is uh, Paul just urging us to live in a certain way. And it's kind of funny how it gets translated here to me, right? It says, the calling to which you have been called. It's kind of redundant. It's like the way that you define a word. Right? If you ask me what a definition of the word is and I gave you the word to define it, that doesn't make any sense. It's like saying, you know, calling is just like what you're called to do. Or uh, you can tell it's an aspen tree just because of the way it is. It doesn't make any sense. right? But what he's referencing here is looking back to Ephesians 1 uh, verse 18 where he talks about our calling in this way. He says, having the, hearts of your, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the work of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? So we are to respond to this calling. We're to respond to the character of the triune God, the death of Jesus for us on the cross so that we might be saved, the great strength of the Father that continues working in us through the Spirit. And he urges us to be marked and full of these virtues that he kind of lays out here, right? Starting with humility. This is all about how we think of ourselves. Out of all these virtues that Paul lists, this is probably the hardest one that's for me personally. Uh, Not because I think I'm a cool guy or anything, but just because I'm very selfish in my thinking. Um, And this quote uh, from Timothy Keller, I think, sums it up perfectly. Uh, The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less, right? So it kind of flips it on its head, and it's not a degree of how great you think you are, but it's a matter of how much you come up in your mind, right? Now, do you go through your day um, saying, I need to do this so that I'm comfortable, or X, Y, Z, right? Does that make sense? Instead, it's, I do these things for the glory of God. And that's how, how it's kind of spelled out what gospel humility is. It's thinking frequently about God, thinking frequently about your neighbor and putting their own needs before yours. The next one, gentleness. How often do you respond to those around you harshly? 
being gentle is kind of synonymous with being graceful, right? In, in my head, those two words go to, together very well. Uh, that is instead of responding with a harsh word or a harsh action, uh, you do it gracefully. You respond with love. You do it in a way that's just gentle, right? Patience, uh, bearing with one another in love. He kind of loops these in together. Uh, we all know what patience is. None of us actually like being patient, something you kind of have to work at. And again, this is about responding out of love. This is about taking a long time, taking lots of uh, annoyances, lots of hurt and pain before you respond. That's what patience is. And lastly, eager to, main uni- eager to maintain unity. And this is not a passive like, yeah, if you can get to it, just do it, Right? This is kind of an eagerness to do these things, a delight to do this. This is something that you naturally um, would choose, right? And I kind of think about the difference between our cat and our dog, right? If the two are out and I get home, the dog is right there at the door. She's eager. She's like, wow, you've been gone for years, right? She's eager to see me. She's eager to be back, right? But the cat just kind of disappears. He's off doing his own thing. Who really knows where he is or what he's doing, right? And that's what he means by eager to maintain unity. It's that excitement. It's that um, drive that, that brings us together to maintain all of these virtues. And all of these things kind of have two big things in common. The first and the most important is that all of these are represented in the character of Jesus. Our lives are to reflect the way that Jesus lived his life. Uh, and this is another reason why it's important for us to look out of look at Jesus and respond to these things is because it helps us in getting things right. It gives us a, a center point to return back to. It isn't us just pulling these ideas out of a magic hat and saying, today I'm going to be humble or today I'll be more patient, right? It's us looking at the gospel, seeing this account of what he's told us to do and how he lived his life and the example he gave, and then trying to aim to that, trying to look like that. And we have this example of what it lives to live out God's will through Christ. And so when we meditate on the Gospels, when we meditate on the account that Jesus' life was like, it gives us instructions on how we are to live, right? And the second thing that we see from these virtues is that they are all about how we respond to one another. And that's really the main thrust of the passage this morning, right? What does God's church look like? How are they characterized? How do they handle relationships between them, right? Is it characterized as... um, People that are individuals, constantly in competition. Are they petty? Are they um, do things? Do they get in fistfights out on the softball field, right? Or they respond to one another in love. Um, and this is, again, like being humble enough to put away your own needs because we recognize it's not all about us, right? Being gentle, even though there's a lot of times where it's easier to respond in anger. Um, putting up with lots of annoyances, being patient before you respond. And John 13, 34 puts it, puts it this way. Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And again, when we start to follow these things, we start to reflect Jesus and the image of God like we're supposed to. We do the most important thing that we could possibly do, and that's point to other people back to the Father, just like Jesus did. And I think where you start to see gaps uh, in your own life and gaps in this virtues that, that Paul encourages us to live by, it's uh, how we actually respond to the gospel. I'd say those are the areas that you really need to push in, right? Why do you respond with anger? Why are you bad at being patient, right? It's about praying to the Father to work in you, uh, leaning on the guidance of the Spirit, meditating on the life of Jesus to show us 
where we fail and how we can be better. Right? And remember what it says at the end of chapter 3, uh, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Right? It's about God working these things in you better than you could. It's about depending on him for that. Right? Let's keep going. Verse 4 says, uh, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and the Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Notice the repetition here. It says there's only one over and over and over again. We get this. We all have the same hope, the same faith, the same Lord. Um, Our baptisms, they may look a little differently in the way that we do this, but they are all to the same faith, right? Different method, same reason. There's not room here for questions or doubts for, for what Paul is trying to get at or what he's trying to say. The statement is trying to show our unity. He's trying to show um, what we have in common, right? First, Christ in common, the most important thing in common. And this makes our differences easy to look past, right? When we have this big important thing that we all agree on, that we all come together, that we all say this is the point of our existence, uh, it becomes easy to look past minor things. It becomes easy to be patient and humble because we recognize that we have this common experience, right? And it's this common experience that all believers share. Uh, It's something that helps us relate to one another. We've all been reconciled to one another by Christ. Um, He killed the hostility between us. He made these things possible. And and that's what the gospel does. Brings us together. But the shared experience of our faith is what helps us stay there. The gospel is the initiation, but it is only through the work of Jesus that we can stay united. Continues in verse 7, uh, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things, right? These few verses are talking about the incarnation of Jesus, how he came from heaven, he descended and lived on earth, and eventually ascended back to the Father. And in doing this, he came in human form, he defeated death, and he rescued us, giving us, one, the gift of salvation, and two, the gift of his Holy Spirit to guide us and help us in these things, right? So all it's saying is, Jesus came to earth. Verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And this is where I think some of the grammar and the structure of the sentence can kind of get tricky, uh, but the way that the ESV translates it, I think, is kind of helpful. So if we look at it, there's two distinct parts that he kind of gives us here. There's two distinct gifts that Christ is giving to the church, right? The first is the gift to the church. It's the the gift of the different offices that we have, right? So he lists several here. He says the apostles, uh, the prophets, the teachers, the evangelists, the shepherds, The apostles, these are the people who would have physically seen the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Those guys are all dead. They're not around anymore. So this kind of a dead office doesn't exist. Uh, But the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, uh, our elders would kind of fall into that category of shepherd teacher. Um, These are the people who guide us, who lead us. And this is the first gift that Christ gave to us. And uh, hear me when I say please hear me, that this isn't a meaning of importance, right? He's not saying that these guys are elevated way up here. They're better. 
That's not what he's saying. What he's trying to say is that these guys came first. They came chronologically first in the timeline, right? And what I mean by that is if, say, for instance, um, the Ephesians, right? They never would have heard about the gospel without the Apostle Paul. If he had not first taken the gospel to these places, they would have never believed. They never would have grown into the church. If it hadn't been for Apollos who came later to teach them and to give them these things, uh, they never would have learned more about Jesus. And Paul kind of uses this line of thinking uh, in Romans 10. He says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And then how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Right? So the first gift is the gospel itself. And it's the people that bring those to us, right? Think about the people that you first heard the gospel from, right? Those are the people that is this first gift that he's giving. The first gift is the, the building up of the church, the people that did that. <clears throat> By building up, I mean the initiation, right? And the second gift is of these verses that are talking about here is the gift of the saints, the gift of the church, the body of believers. And to kind of paraphrase, paraphrase here, right, it's saying y'all people, right? Paul is pointing to the church to be the ones who actually do the work of the ministry. And he says it, I think it's kind of, again, tricky to see it, right? But it's the, the apostles, the prophets who equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, right? And I think there's a couple of different ways that you can think about it. The first being, um, if Paul had brought the gospel to Ephesus, and he preached it here, and then some people heard about it in the region, uh, but they never built up the body. If they never built up the church, it would have died with Paul. That would have been the end of it, right? That would have been the reign of the gospel in this region under them, under Paul, sure, they would have grown to maturity, but what about the rest of the church that would have came eventually? If the church had only depended on Paul to do the building, he only stayed for a couple of years, right? It takes more than just one person to do this. And again, in our local context, another part that's a little more applicable, uh, if each week, right, if the elders and the, the pastors, if we filled up our schedules with meeting with people, with discipling, with doing these things, with teaching, then I could probably reach some of you. I wouldn't be able to reach all of you. There's only so many hours in the day, right? But maybe most, right? And these interactions would probably be good, some of them. Um, but there's going to be times and instances where I'm not going to be able to speak into every little thing, right? So take a pregnant lady that's having trouble with pregnancy, I don't know how to relate to that, right? I don't know what it feels like to be pregnant. I never will. But some of you do, right? And that's what's so important about the body building itself up. It's because we can't possibly relate to all these little things. And again, if everyone built up, right, just a fellow believer in Christ, if everyone met the needs of those around them, we'd be meeting the needs so much better than just one person doing all the work. And something that's kind of been going through my mind the last few weeks as I've been studying this is, why does all of this matter? Why does it matter if we're unified? Why does it matter if we all agree, if we all come together, right? We hear that, I feel like I hear that all the time. Why do I need to go to church if I can just stay at home and read my Bible? Why do I need the body of believers if I can do this myself, right? And I don't think it's a question so much of pointing at one distinct issue. I think it's a matter of Paul connecting our growth as Christians to the church. Right? The two things can't be separated or divided. Not as he lays it out in this passage. Right? And he continues in verse 15. He says, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body 
joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So Paul is connecting our growth as Christians to the whole body, the church, building itself up in love. Growing into Christ, becoming more like him, depends, again, on first God's first gift of grace, his first working through us, and then by working through and with each other. Right? And this, again, is just another outpouring of a God's grace. It's all there. We definitely can't depend on the world to grow us into mature Christians, right? Can't do it. That's obvious. And we can't depend on ourselves to go out and do this fight alone. Something about sin that it tends to do is it blinds us. We become blind to the own things that we do wrong. And a lot of times it takes somebody else looking into your life, pointing out the sin, and helping you do this. This is why he also says to speak the truth in love, not harshly, but gently. When we lovingly point out sin, and again, not in a harsh way, not in a, I'm better than you, I've done this right, and this right, and this right. But when we do this gently and well, we help build each other up. On the flip side, that's also why we're to be humble, so that we can take this criticism well, so that we can, um, when we are approached, we can do it lovingly. And also so that we can humble ourselves by taking our sin to other people for help. Right? The church is a precious gift given to us by God for our benefit. He's kind of decided, designed us to live this way. We have the church here not to just entertain us and make us happy, but to help us live holy lives uh, that might add up to look more like Christ. And I think one of the best metaphors that Paul uses for this is he talks about the body, right? He talks about it as being a physical body, and he does this well in other passages as well. Um, But say if my arm were to just fall off, right, it's not going to function very well without the rest of the body. It's got no food, no nourishment, no oxygen, name it. It's going to sit on the floor and die, right? The rest of me, I'm going to be a lot less useful with just one arm, okay? I'm going to have a hard time driving, probably going to have to be fed the rest of my life. Um, Lots of fun things. So we see this dependence on the arm for the body and the body for the individual parts. It's not just about one part, it's about all the parts coming together. So how do we apply this? Truthfully, I think that this is something that most of us already do pretty well. Um, If that weren't the case, why would you be here this morning? Why would you go to family groups? I think it's something that we recognize as being good But if we recognize it as being good and recognize that this is something good God has given us, then we have to keep guarding it. We have to keep improving it. We have to keep fighting for it. And I think there's several different questions that we kind of can ask ourselves to um, reflect where we are with this and to see how good we are at helping the body build itself up. One, are you actually a part of the body? I mean this in two ways, right? The first is, do you know who Jesus is? Do you believe in him? Do you believe that he died for your sins, cleansing you, reconciling you to God, giving us peace, right? Being part of the body has to start there. That's the first step, and if it isn't without that, then you're out of luck anyway. The second way that I mean here is that are you physically involved? Are you involved in a family group? Do you come on Sunday mornings? Do you leave as soon as we're done? Have you become a member? Which, by the way, our next steps class for membership is on November 12th. If you haven't been a member, that one's coming up. So um, are you really unified to the church or are you just present on Sunday mornings? The second one, are you committed to serving here? 
Uh, God gave us physical bodies for a reason, for a good thing, and we can use those as a tool to help kind of point ourselves in the right direction. Uh, When we posture our bodies to serving one another, our hearts and our minds tend to follow those things. Uh, Something that I think about the way this happens is usually when I get home, if I open the fridge, I wasn't hungry before I opened it, but now that I'm standing there in front of it, I could probably eat. And that's kind of the same thing here, right? If we use a more spiritual example, it's like bowing on our knees in prayer. When we take this physical posture of submission, this physical body bowing down before God, it helps our minds and our hearts submit to God. It helps us understand Him. And it's the same thing when we serve one another in love, when we um, set up chairs, when we serve in tech, when we help kids, things like this. It's our hearts and our minds trying to follow our body in the way that we serve, right? Uh, We actually have a QR code, if we could put this up real quick, right? Um, that we've made. Um, if you're not serving somewhere, you can scan it. It'll get you plugged in. We'll get the responses and try to help you find a place to serve, right? And then point three, and I think this is kind of where most of us will land, but are you committed to building one another up? Are you committed to actually making disciples? Are you quick to step in where you notice that someone's failing and that you can help, right? And this is something that I think is hard. It's by no means easy, but I think it's also something that we're called to do. Right? You take the Great Commission, the last uh, words of Jesus. He says, go out and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, teaching them all that I have taught you. Right? That's the way that we're supposed to do these things. And again, I think this takes some self-reflection to look at ourselves and ask if we are truly united to the body. Are you depending on the instructions of God? Are you depending on what he has given us and told you is good, what is needed for the building up of yourself? Are you depending on the work of the church in sanctifying you? Or do you depend on your own wisdom, right? The Bible says, um, wisdom of God, the foolishness of God is better than the wisdom of man. And that's just something that we have to understand is that we don't get it right, but God has given us a tool to help us get it right. So as we go into a time of communion, as we take time to reflect on who Jesus is, what he has done for us, how we should live, um, I just want to point out that there's a reason he's called us to a table, right? He hasn't, it's not like the Old Testament where they would go to an altar. He calls us to a table uh, to be with one another, most importantly, to be with God himself, right? Uh, And so as we, we take time to be in communion, just remember that, that We are called to God that this is a time where we can remember who he is and what he's done with us, but also done for us, sorry, but also a time where we can remember each other and pray for one another and be there for one another. So I'll pray for us, and when you're ready, the the table is open. Father, I thank you that you would give us so many gifts that would help us in building, building up. I thank you for the gift of your son first, that he would instruct us die for us and show us the way. I thank you that you would give us the gift of leaders to guide us in the direction we need to go of our elders and um, people that you've given to the church. I thank you most of all for the church that you wouldn't just tell us we're on it on our own, but that you would give us a group of people that we can lean on, a group of people that we can depend on to help build us up. I thank you that you haven't left us to do this all on our own, Father. And I just pray that as we we go out this week that we remember to walk as you have commanded us, that we remember to respond quickly with love, that we, we do all of these things out of love, Father. I thank you for all that you've done and all that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.